Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanities, and alongside me is my ho- my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. This is such a great moment in MMA history. This is an amazing fight card that we're going to be talking about. Great stories, great fights, great commentary, great production. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I've been... I didn't realize when we were, you know, because we go card by card, I I just wasn't like looking ahead necessarily. I knew we were going to come into, you know, a time where Strikeforce was going to really, quote unquote, hit it big beyond just drawing local large cards and really blast out onto the national scene. And I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to be this one. So (laughs) uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to to getting this. We want to welcome our listeners. Uh, Inside the Hexcon is about walking through the major events, fighters and milestones of Strike Force, which is a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 to 2013. And as Josh kind of alluded to there on today's episode, we're going to be covering Shamrock versus Diaz, which took place in April of 2009. And this was a huge event. It would kick off the kind of Showtime CBS era for Strike Force, and it would also serve as Frank Shamrock's retirement bout. So uh, no one knew it at that time. In fact, it wouldn't officially become his retirement bout for about a year after the card because that's when he decided to officially hang up his gloves. Uh, but it, obviously a, a very important moment in Strike Force and really MMA overall. We also would see Gilbert Melendez compete for the Strike Force interim lightweight title, and Scott Hands of Steel Smith would be back in an absolute barn burner with R- Benji Razor Raddick. So there's a, a ton to get to. Uh, the the debut of Brett Rogers. I mean, just so much. So, uh, so let's let's jump in. I will mention Strike Force had not held a card since Destruction the previous November. However, so it had been almost five months since they'd put on an event, which is an eternity it seems like. But the promotion had been very very busy, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But coming out of Destruction, we had a brand new Strike Force light heavyweight champion in Hanato Babalu Sobral, uh, who I interviewed on our most recent episode. So I, I would highly suggest that you go check that out if you haven't already. Babalu beat Bobby Southworth by TKO via cut and was now at the top of the 205-pound mountain in Strike Force. And, and Scott Coker now had probably someone more marketable uh, as his light heavyweight champion and somebody that was going to probably deliver more eyeballs. So, uh, you know, probably a good move for the promotion, although obviously they had nothing to do with making that happen other than matching the two up. Uh, but Scott Smith also got a highlight of the night with a 29-second starching of Terry Martin while Joe Riggs overcame a sluggish start to stop Luke Stewart and future champ Luke Rockhold would make his Strikeforce tentpole event debut, you know, main uh, big event. He'd fought on challengers before, but but as far as big events, that was his first one. He got a submission win over Nick Theodicus. Uh, so Strikeforce had some new stars on its hands, and we would see some of them uh, display their skill set at Shamrock versus Diaz. Now, that event itself was announced in February of 2009, but before we get to that, I did want to cover some of the major business deals made by Scott Coker and Strikeforce between Destruction and Shamrock versus Diaz because this is very, very important stuff. Uh, as we covered in our last uh, event episode, Elite XC had gone under after the Kimbo Seth Petrozelli fiasco uh, where they uh, Seth had un- had knocked out Kimbo uh, in front of a CBS audience and uh, it just really just killed what was left of the promotion at that point. With that, the tape library and the promotion's fighters were available to the highest bidder, which would end up being Scott Coker. And according to an MMA Weekly article, he worked on a deal for three months and it was, quote-unquote, a roller coaster ride. Uh, in the end, Strike Force ended up adding 42 fighters from Elite XC to its ranks, including Kimbo Slice, including Chris Cyborg, Jake Shields, Nick Diaz, Gina Carano, Robbie Lawler, current WWE star Shayna Baszler, who was not a big deal in MMA at that point, but, you know, obviously is a, 
a bigger deal now and then and a bunch of others as well and this was a a huge boon to strike forces roster as uh, let's be honest it was pretty thin in most divisions which forced coker to really be dependent on one-off fights with big names like frank trigg and Bob Sapp, and that would no longer be the case, which was which was good for Strikeforce. Yeah, much of what we have talked about, Phil, with Strikeforce leading up to now on these shows is how uneven Strikeforce has been, how inconsistent it has been in terms of the type of fighters who are appearing on the cards, as well as the production and the announcers. I mean, we're having shows at the Shark Tank. We're having shows in Washington. We're having shows at the Playboy Mansion. I mean, it's sort of got this sort of unsteady feeling that's going on. But here, all of a sudden, Strike Force becomes a big deal. And that's because Scott Coker figured out, hey, if we're going to be able to expand and move this to the next level, this deal is huge. This was such a great deal for Strikeforce. Elite XC, you know, at the time, you know, there was all this buzz around them and they had all this funding and all the, they were able to sign all these fighters. No one knew that it was going to, you know, tank so quickly. And so <clears throat> there's this huge group of fighters that that had a home, found a home in Strikeforce. And it's really where they belonged. And over time, we would see it's where they emerged and found themselves. And it's where they defined themselves as really good fighters. <clears throat> this was like a... Um, you know, to use a WWF analogy, it was like 1984 when the WWF was preparing for a national expansion. They went out and they plucked all these big names. And, uh, of course, then they have their big shows and their WrestleMania and everything takes off and they're taking over the country. Well, this was sort of like like Strike Forces moment where they were able to, to bring in and infuse all of this talent in overnight. And then they have this show on Showtime. And they're going to get some CBS shows out of this. I mean, this was a money deal. Genius by Scott Coker. Yeah, absolutely. And they, 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 and it was much needed. That was the other thing was that if they were going to expand, they needed more fighters. They needed better broadcast. I mean, HDNet was, was great. But, you know, taking the next step, Showtime makes a lot of sense. Uh, for, and so there was a lot of, as part of this, there were a lot of rumors and proposed fights. I mean, just really exciting stuff. Frank Shamrock versus Tito Ortiz. That Tito was, I don't believe, under contract with UFC anymore at that point. And so there was, uh, you know, they called each other out. And so that was rumored. Josh Thompson versus KJ Noons. Robbie Lawler versus Joey Villasenor. Uh, Their the rematch, the rematch between Gilbert Melendez and Mitsuhiro Ishida. And Ishida was the, the first guy to beat Melendez. Of course, Gina Carano versus Chris Cyborg. Havael Fejao, Cavalcante versus Hinato Babalu, Sobral, Kimbo versus Bob Bob Sapp was even rumored, which thank God that never happened. But uh, just so many big fights that could be made now as a result of this deal. And and, and again, more eyeballs that we're going to be able to see it. And, you know, Elite XC does not get a lot of respect because of the kind of circus way that they handled their fighters and building Kimbo up too quickly, which actually we're going to talk about in just a second. But, you know, to their credit, they did, they drew a lot of eyeballs and it opened the door for Strikeforce to be able to, to be able to be on CBS. So it, there was a lot of really exciting things that, that happened out of that. Uh, a few of the fights I just men mentioned would end up happening, but none of them would be part of Shamrock versus Diaz. But I did want to talk about Kimbo just for a second. I mean, such an intriguing part of this deal. Uh, you know, a guy, again, that would draw eyeballs. Uh, you know, he had had the, the most watched MMA fight in history at that point, despite not being a well-rounded MMA fighter. I mean, he was, 
he just he was a guy that could brawl. He didn't have a ground game, and he had obviously a very unique and very interesting look. But you know, the, as far as being a great MMA fighter, no. And and Scott Coker seemed rather cool to the idea of Kimbo competing at the time in Strikeforce, telling Sherdog, "quote Picture a guy that has some street fighting capabilities that seems like he can punch pretty good, but put him in an MMA situation." He's not a journeyman fighter. He's not a superstar in MMA. He's just learning. He got thrown into the spotlight at a high level where there's a lot of pressure to perform, but he probably needed 10 or 12 fights under his belt before he took that leap, end quote. But at 35 years old, Kimbo and his management knew that his time was limited and they wanted to fight. So there was a couple articles that came out around that time, uh, quotes from Mike Ember, who was uh, who's Kimbo's manager, and saying, hey, we, just, we want to fight. And uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on your point of view, he would never fight for Strike Force. Instead, he would end up joining the Ultimate Fighter uh, this, in the summer of 2009. And Coker and Kimbo would work together later in Bellator before Slice's untimely death in 2016 at the, the age of 42 uh, from heart failure, just about four months after his last his last fight. So, uh, kind of, you know, maybe it was best for everybody that they didn't end up working together at that point. Maybe maybe Kimbo would have killed Strike Force. Uh, in the way that he was put in a position to kill Elite XC and, and you know, wouldn't have worked out. But, uh, you know, it, it would have been interesting. <laughs> it would have been interesting either way. But, yeah, we did, we never did see that. You know, it, I'm sure you remember watching some of Kimbo's backyard brawls. And as crude as they are for, you know, pure MMA fans, the one thing you see if you watch any of those are, are his extraordinary confidence. I mean, this guy was definitely the king of backyard fighting, and and and, and he was fighting tough guys. I mean, these are not guys that you know anybody would want to fight with, and uh, he was just so confident, you know. And then it's just so sad, sort of what happened when he got underneath the lights. And I think it just goes to how much confidence has to do with your ability to perform. Now, obviously, he's taking on fighters who know how to do things other than punch. And he's taking on fighters who know how to defend themselves and who know how to take down and they're trained. So it's obviously a different level and a different situation. I kind of think that, that Kimba would have been better off in strike force. I feel like... Coker and the team would have cared about him and his success a little bit more and would not have rushed him. And of course, you know, he got on the ultimate fighter and, you know, that was sort of a deal where he, you know, he didn't do very well. He got some TV attention, but I just don't think that that was the best route. But you know, what it did show was that UFC was watching and they're like, we're going to take this Kimbo Slice guy, because he's a big TV draw. We're not going to put him in the octagon. We're going to put him on the ultimate fighter. He's going to have to build his way up. And uh, basically, though, what they took was a, a cash machine, a money maker. And I almost think Strikeforce would have been better off just, just keeping him. But, you know, it goes to the whole narrative of all these merge, all these paths crossed with Strikeforce and these fighters and Elite XC and, and Kimbo sort of just kind of, you know, flirting with the opportunity to be in Strikeforce and, and UFC kind of watching all of a sudden paying attention saying, holy cow, there's another big MMA company on the rise. Let's start looking at who they get. And eventually, of course, they, you know, they start plucking them. And we won't even talk about Ronda Rousey yet as being sort of the defining character of Strikeforce who the, who eventually redefined the sport. We'll get to that too. Yes, we will. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I agree with you that Coker and Strikeforce probably would have been better equipped to handle somebody like Kimbo. I mean, you look at Bobby Lashley, you look at Herschel Walker. I mean, they definitely worked with, um, you know, guys that were early in their career or were crossing over from other sports. 
And while Dana has dealt with that with guys like James Tony and CM Punk, whether it's a one-off or a guy that's actually trying to make the switch, you know, he tends to kind of throw them to the wolves uh, in a lot of ways. And meanwhile, Coker will build guys up like he's doing with, uh, with Jake Hager uh, in, you know, from AEW in, in Bellator. So I, I agree with you and, and it probably would have gone better for sure. But, you know, unfortunately we, we never found out, but uh, but as also as part of the deal, now that the promotions agreement with HDNet was completed, Strikeforce would begin to air their events on Showtime and CBS. And uh, it looked like they were going to be really aggressively expanding in 2009. There's supposed to be 16 fights on uh, Showtime, and, and CBS was also uh, supposed to have, have an option to produce four live event specials. Uh, and so, I mean, we're talking about outside of CBS, we're talking about 16 events over 12 months. This is coming from a promotion that was averaging an event every three months. And, and the last event destruction was only a month and a half after their, after payback, the, which was again, the month and a half before that. So now we're talking about more than one event a month. I mean, that's just, that's such a, a, just so much faster of a pace than Strikeforce had been moving up to this point. So, I mean, it's no wonder they took off five months in between events, but it was definitely, the deal was definitely worth it. According to reports, the deal uh, with Showtime and CBS would put around $25 million in licensing fees in Strikeforce's coffers. So obviously now you got some money to pay some of these guys coming in too. So, so that was a great deal for them, you know, 100%. Uh, but lastly, before Shamrock Diaz versus Diaz, it was announced that Coker had taken on partners as owners in Strikeforce and the new group would be called Silicon Valley Sports and Entertainment. Uh, the new partners owned the HP Pavilion, so this made a lot of sense. Uh, and we talk about their his, uh, Coker's relationship with them in on the uh, the interview episode with Scott that kicked off this podcast several months back. So if you haven't already, make sure you go back in the archives and check that out. All right, yeah, let's get to the fight card itself. It was announced in February, as I mentioned, but it would take some time to firm up because there were so many moving parts, uh, you know, fighter contracts and dealing with managers and who's healthy, who's injured, who's available. Who's not? And again, now you you know you're not just planning for one event at a time. You're planning for a bunch of events, so you don't you know you can't put all your headliners on one card, all that stuff. So uh, th there was a lot a lot to work out, but we would find out that it would be headlined by a fight between Frank Shamrock and Nick Diaz, which was an extremely intriguing matchup. I mean, these are two fighters that love to talk trash in and out of the cage, but could back it up. And and we'll talk more about that fight in a bit. But as we went along. There were fights that were added, changed, or dropped, and this included uh, the aforementioned Josh Thompson versus KJ Nunes. That was called off when Nunes' management turned down the fight in favor of focusing on his boxing career. So instead, they decided to go with Thompson versus Melendez too, and that would be announced. However, that would be called off just 10 days before the event as Thompson would suffer a broken leg while sparring in preparation for the fight. So instead, they kept Melendez on the card, and he would take on Brazilian national wrestling champ Rodrigo Dom. Uh, then Joe Riggs versus Jake Shields was set, and that and then that would be called off when Shields instead was offered the chance to fight Robbie Lawler on a May Strike Force card in an MMA Weekly article. Shields said that he was never really excited about fighting Riggs because essentially he didn't feel like he was a top 10 guy. Uh, so when the challenge of moving up and taking on Robbie Lawler at middleweight, you know, a straight-up killer like Lawler, he jumped at that chance, and Riggs would end up being pulled from this card as a result. Uh, and then finally, it was determined that Gina Carano would not fight on this card, but on a later one. So Cyborg was matched up with Japanese fighter Hitomi Akano. And then undefeated heavyweights Brett Rogers and Abongo Humphrey were signed to open the main card in about that. I mean, just had knockout written all over it. They were both uh, undefeated knockout artists. And so that was definitely a fight to look forward to. And then rising stars Luke Rockhold, James Terry, and Eric Lawson were all added to the undercard. So an extremely, extremely intriguing fight card. 
Uh, but as we like to do on the show, we discuss what's going on in the UFC at this time. Uh, BJ Penn was still the lightweight champion, GSP, undisputed welterweight champion, Anderson Silva, the reigning middleweight champ. Uh, we did have a new UFC light heavyweight champion as Rashad Evans had unseated Forrest Griffin at UFC 92 defeating him by third-round TKO. Uh, this is actually the first time that two uh, tough winners had faced off for a UFC championship. And then also on that same event, Frank Mir captured the UFC interim heavyweight title from Antonio Rodrigo Noguera. Uh, and this really confused me as I read this because I thought Randy Couture was the the heavyweight champion, and then I you know saw Noguera was the... Um, was the interim champion, so I thought Couture was on the the sidelines. But then Brock Lesnar beats Randy Couture for the heavyweight title, so I'm thinking, okay, the inter- interim is gone, you know, interim title's gone now, and we just have one heavyweight champion. Uh, but for some reason, the UFC decided to let Noguera keep the interim belt that they that had been handed out after Couture got into that contract dispute with the UFC, and so they let Noguera defend the interim title against Frank Mir, who TKO'd the former Pride champ. So got, once again, we had two heavyweight titles floating around, uh, which would eventually be dealt with. Uh, but the closest UFC event to uh, Shamrock versus Diaz was UFC 97 Redemption, which took place on April 18, 2009, one week after Shamrock versus Diaz, emanating from the Bell Center in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The event drew 21,451, breaking the UFC attendance record set a year earlier at UFC 83. Uh, the gate was $4.9 million, so great gate, and the event generated a very strong 650,000 pay-per-view, excuse me, pay-per-view buys. Uh, Dennis Kang, Nate Quarry, and Ed Herman all got wins on the undercard, while Chet Congo and Sam Stout were victorious on the main card. Uh, in highlight bouts, Shogun Hua TKO'd Chuck Liddell in the first round, continuing the Iceman's career-ending slide, and Anderson Silva defended the UFC middleweight title with a second-round knockout of Talis Lytus. All right, but here we are. Uh, I we are at the. Uh, it's time to talk about Shamrock versus Diaz. I did want to mention a very cool tech feature that was announced in advance of Shamrock versus Diaz. Uh, Diaz Showtime announced all access and interactive live stream of the event, which cost twenty four ninety five. With it, uh, viewers would be able to control their quote control their own viewing experience through multiple camera angles with corresponding audio tracks, as well as interact with fellow users view user-generated photos and download select music tracks from the event. With Strikeforce All Access, fans can be the producer. Users can toggle between five live cameras surrounding the cage with full pause and rewind capabilities. Audio tracks will include the Showtime telecast fight call by Gus Johnson, Moore Ronaldo, and Pat Militich, and the corresponding audio to the select camera. Fans will be able to make predictions, comment on live fights, discuss outcomes, and even talk a little smack with all access through a live Facebook Connect application, end quote. That that sounds, Josh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that sounds pretty cool to me. I, I wonder how that went, but assuming the technology worked out, that actually, I don't know that I'd pay 25 bucks for it, but... That'd be something I think I'd be up for. What about you? I wonder how many people signed up for this thinking yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I wonder yeah. how many people signed up thinking they could do the Gina Carano cam like for the whole show, because <laughs> because yeah. I think I mean I on paper it sounds really cool for this to happen. Um, I, I'd have to do it and try it and see what the functionality is. Uh, for sure. But um, if I could definitely create a package where I could only hear Mauro Ranello's <laughs> calling there the fight, I, I would definitely, definitely do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, that sounds really cool. Obviously, it didn't take off. So it was yeah, probably more. I don't, think more they, I don't think they kept doing that. Yeah. It's probably more work than um, the number of people who paid for it. But probably. hey, 
someday we might see it again come back i mean if you're already paying for showtime because again the event was shown on showtime which you at that point i i don't know if you're paying for it monthly or what but that was not a you know so you're already paying for it and then it's like all right well 25 bucks on top of that gives you more access but so i you know i yeah i i I doubt it went great because they I, i don't remember them doing this again maybe they did maybe they didn't but uh, and for listeners, the Gina Carano cam, we'll get to that in just a second. That actually seemed to be a real thing, and we'll we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But well, as mentioned earlier, this would be Strike Force's first Showtime event as a result of the the Elite XC deal, and the broadcast would draw approximately three hundred sixty four thousand viewers. Uh, the the broadcasters, as we mentioned, would be Gus Johnson, Moro Ronaldo, and Pat Militich with Johnson handling in-cage post-fight interviews, and Jimmy Lennon Jr. was back as the ring announcer. Uh, so Shamrock versus Diaz drew 15,211 fans at the HP Pavilion, which was its highest attendance total since Shamrock versus Lee the previous March, which really cemented, uh, once again, that Frank Shamrock was the biggest draw that Strike Force had in its first three years of existence, bar none, Close the book. I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, the gate was $750,000, which when you mentioned $4.9 million for, for UFC, again, shows just the, the you know, the differences between uh, the two promotions at that time. But still a strong a strong gate number for Strike Force, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, it was cool to see Gus Johnson. He definitely brought that mainstream sports world credibility to the show. Uh, That was good. I think it was good. If you're somebody who's checking out what's on Showtime that night and you see Gus Johnson and you're like, what is this boxing, MMA? And that's, you know, quite honestly, a lot of people, you know, find find the sport is they're just sort of casual and they're checking it out. It was nice to have him there. Uh, He is not a natural (laughs) MMA announcer by any means, as as we'll talk about. Um, You know, he kind of approaches it like like it's boxing and, and it's not so um it was great to have Mauro Ranallo I mean he Mauro Ranallo I can't say enough about how incredible this guy is is the best sports combat combat sports announcer so good and and so much energy and so much so knowledgeable um he overshadowed Gus Johnson all night uh it was nice to have Pat Militech on the on the card uh he was Obviously, a former fighter, had great analysis. He is so good. And I don't love his voice. He's not a natural analyst, but he's so smart that uh, he he definitely brought a lot of credibility as well to, to this show for the MMA fans. So I thought it was a good team to start, but over time, we didn't really need much more of Gus. No. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would have liked to have seen maybe Gus you know, lay out a lot more. And I mean, obviously you and I are both huge, huge fans of Mara Ronaldo. So uh, I would have been perfectly happy with Mara and Pat Militich just handling things. But again, Gus does bring that, you know, kind of mainstream credibility. So, and especially at that time, because Mara was not a big deal uh, yet. And Militich was still early on in his commentary career. So, uh, but yeah, but as I mentioned before, obvious Frank Shamrock was still the main draw for strike force. And, you know, with him coming to the end of his career, it was critical for the promotion to have new headliners to draw eyeballs and ticket sales. And so adding these elite XC fighters came at an extremely critical time for Strike Force. But with that, let's actually get into the fight card itself. Uh, the undercard, we're going to get through pretty quickly. There's no video available for the, these fights. I was able to find, uh, you know, descriptions of, of the of the of the fights. And so we'll, we'll touch on a couple of them. But to open things up at 135 pounds, Shingo Kohara defeated Jeremy Tavares via KO, coming by way of knee at four seconds of the second round. 
Uh, in a welterweight bout, James Terry defeated Zach Bouchia via unanimous decision. And this was Terry's strike force debut, and he was coming in at five and one. So he was a fighter to keep an eye on. Bouchia had one had fought and won at destruction and was three and one. Uh, the fight was all James Terry, uh, and the only, but, and he used utilized his wrestling advantage to the fullest extent. But I, there was something controversial with this fight that I wanted, so it made me want to read this. But this is from SureDog, quote, The official scores are read or attempted to be read by the ring announcer, Stu Gans, who is having all kinds of difficulty. At first, he stammered to 30 to 27 scores for Zach Bushia before being directed by Bushia to the commissioners at ringside who were trying to get his attention. He then correctly read the scores as 30, 27, all on three cards for the winner, James Terry. Uh, when you have the losing fighter telling you that, no, you got that wrong, um, <laughs> you may want to be thinking about an, another, <laughs> another line of work. Uh, but these two actually would rematch just a few months later to a more decisive ending. Maybe it was because of the confusion. I, I don't know why, but they actually would battle later on in Strike Force. Uh, in the next bout, about at a catch weight of 187.5 pounds, because uh, one of the fighters missed weight by two and a half pounds and was fined 20% of his purse. Raul Castillo defeated Brandon Michaels via submission coming by way of rear naked choke at 145 of the first round, and it was Michaels that had come in overweight, and Castillo made him pay for it, both uh, both literally and, and figuratively. Uh, then in a middleweight bout, Eric Lawson defeated Waylon Kennel via TKO coming by way of punches at 454 of the first round. Lawson was a guy to watch, as I mentioned. He was 8-2 coming in. He won three straight in strike force, so perhaps a flashy win might garner him a higher spot on the card next time around. And Kennel, who I think should have been nicknamed the Dog or something to that that effect, Waylon the Dog Kennel or something like that, uh, was 4-1 and one and will be making his Hexagon debut, and I'll be here all week. Be sure to tip your waivers. <laughs> that's, uh, they, that's that's from your public relations work. You've know, yeah. you got to be thinking <laughs> of those snappy leads. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, this was a this was a back and forth fight. Both competitors having their moments. Lawson seeded Kennel with a couple uppercuts, but uppercuts, but Kennel was survived and put Lawson on his back foot with some strikes. He even gets Lawson in a tight armbar, but Lawson perseveres. Eventually reverses and rained down uh, some ground and pound until the ref stepped in with only six seconds left in the round uh, in that in that first round. So good win for Lawson, and we'll discuss him a bit more in the future. And then in the kind of quote unquote main event of the undercard, Luke Rockhold defeated Buck Meredith via submission coming by way of rear naked choke at four or seven of the first round in a middleweight bout. Rockhold was three and one coming in. Meredith was three and two. So these guys look to be a good matchup on paper. Uh, Rockhold was coming off a slick first round rear naked choke some, uh, victory over Nick Theodicus, as we talked about at, at strike force destruction and being that he was the last fight on the undercard, you know, it looked like strike force was looking to build him up. And, and he, he he held good on his end, made good on it. Rockhold landed a nice takedown early. Meredith did his best to survive, but Rockhold sunk in a modified arm-in rear naked choke to get the submission victory with less than a minute left in the first round. Uh, but Meredith, he would never compete in strike force, or I'm sorry, in MMA again. He would end his career at 3-3. Three and three. As for Rockhold, of course, uh, we would hear a lot more from him in the future. He would compete on three straight challengers events after this. Strikeforce apparently chose to build him up pretty slowly, and he also he also had to deal with some injury issues, including a bum shoulder. Uh, he would get three he would get finishes in all three of those fights, but it would actually be two years before he competed on a tent pole Strikeforce event again. So. We won't be talking much about him for a while, actually, which is kind of weird. But uh, two but things: we will, we two will th talk about him more in the future. Yeah, two go ahead. things. Two things, Phil. Uh, I don't know how you don't put Luke Rockhold on the card. 
I mean, if you're just talking, I know you want to bring him out slow, but you know, aesthetically, he's he's definitely somebody you want on TV. I mean, I mean, he he's, he's yes, gonna- we know you think he's handsome. Got it. <laughs> no, you. no, but I mean, he's he's yeah. a he's a no, big, he's very he's, he's very big, marketable. Why he's not? a big guy too. He's not a small guy. Uh, we like to watch the you know the guys in the larger divisions, and yes, he looks like a movie star. But uh, Buck Meredith. Wow, what a name. You know? Yeah, he it's sounds such... like somebody like that was on like Gunsmoke in the 50s or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it was like the adventures of, of Buckaroo. So I don't know, something <laughs> like that. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't know why they kept him on Challengers for so long. I, I, I don't understand that at all. I know he went a good, I think between his last Challengers fight and that first fight back on it, or his, yeah, first fight. Uh, he was on a main card when he came back and, and he had been out for quite a while with this, this shoulder injury, I believe. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't quite understand it. And, and maybe that's why I think he's 16 and five for his career. He's only got 21 fights despite, you know, starting off all the way back in 2008. So kind of, well, that's, that's cause he gets injured or he does, I mean, he's, he, he does get every, injured every, lot. every two years, you know, yeah. he's out for a year. So. Yeah. He, and, and then, you know, he's been out for a while cause he's, you know, not sure if he wants to fight or not. Now it seems like he wants to be back, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that's, that's the situation there. But, uh, regardless, we're on to the main card now and there is video of this, thank God on UFC fight pass. So we're able to watch, um, the entire main card and super, super professional video package to kick things off. Very, very slick. You could see the showtime difference right away. You know, Gus Morrow and Militich that, you know, have, having them on handling commentary, uh, made this seem like an even bigger deal. I, I I thought they right out the gate. I thought, man, this this looks professional. Absolutely. You know this this took me back when I watched this and the opening package with the music. Like I, I can you you can hear the music, Phil. I know you can. It's just <laughs> it's just perfect because it's so halting. It's almost like a a scary movie or something. It's like this stalking beat and the way they played the vid- the photos it was just in sync and it just it gave me the chills i mean that that was so powerful and you had these fighters and then you had the music in sync great stuff it made me remember when i was watching the show and feeling like this is not the ufc this is better and this is so good it was good because it, it kind of felt like the old time boxing when boxing was big, you know, for the for the old guys who used to watch boxing like myself, it felt like it was almost like a Mike Tyson fight or even something produced by HBO. It, it was so professional, but it was with young MMA fighters, so it felt cool. Uh, UFC, I've always felt was brand focus, but but Strike Force in this moment, it felt like wow, they're actually showing images of all these different rising stars. These different fighters, that's so different. You just don't see that. Like with the UFC packages, you see action, but you don't see the stills of who they who they are. And I just thought it was like, wow, that's so amazing. Who are these guys? I mean, you know, it felt like Strike Force was the next big thing in MMA. And and the fact that they were able to acquire the assets of Elite XC was it was so huge because Overnight, they were able to put together this this incredible presentation, and I loved how when the video package ended, it froze there with Jake Shields, and you know, hit his arm up in the air. It's like, wow, is Jake Shields the future of Strike Force? Is this the guy that they're gonna market as the next big thing? You know, it's like it's like with WWE. You know, they do they have their big intro 
and it's it like ends on like Roman Reigns or somebody. It's like that's the guy that they want to focus on. And it, this here it is. It's Jake Shields. The drone video. I don't know if you remember this, Phil. Uh, uh, just like descending onto the HP Pavilion. Yeah. And yeah. like you could see a little bit of the city and the parking lot, and then you got Gus Johnson doing the voiceover. It's just like. Oh my God, this is like the Super Bowl. This is so good. It's just because you you had never seen this before. Even though they had all these shows at the Shark Tank, you didn't see this overhead shot. You know, for, for people who like, are like, what's the big deal about the building? Okay, the Shark Tank, the HP Pavilion, this is like the Madison Square Garden of Bay Area MMA. I mean, this is the birth of Strike Force. This is like the place where you can draw 14, 15,000 15, people to a card in California for a non-UFC event at the time. They did this before the UFC was able to do this. I mean, it was so special. And um, it, it made me sort of feel... Um, a little bit sad because I'm like thinking Strike Force was so big at this moment and we wouldn't quite see that anymore. Even though Bellator had a lot of success as a TV promotion, it's just it's a different kind of feel because Bellator is very much a Viacom sort of company. So I don't know. I was so excited about this whole thing. And I will say with the production value, what I noticed right away, and we're going to talk about this with Brett Rogers, is how bright the cage was, how bright the arena was. You could see everything, and that is a dramatic difference to all of Strike Force's previous shows, where it was dark and only the cage is lit up. So, so this this felt huge. This felt special, and I'm so glad that um, you know it lives on video for anybody who wants to go watch it. Yeah, absolutely. And and as part of that, th there's just nice little touches, like you said, like the the drone shot, and just make it make it feel big. Another thing that made this feel big was there was tons of stars in the house for the event and Showtime made sure to let the audience at home know it. Gina Carano, Tito Ortiz, Andre Arlovsky, Kung Lee, actor Mickey Rourke, Kevin Randleman, Alistair Overeem, Babalu, Fabrizio Verdun, Robbie Lawler. And not every single one of them was highlighted as far as being on camera, but uh, they were all shown on camera at one point. And I, again, I thought that was a really nice touch. It made it seem like a really big deal. Yeah, it was produced really, really well. The crowd popped huge for Gina Carano. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it was like, I mean, she does, she has that, that smile down. Like she just has a way of like, oh, camera's on me. Let me smile. And, and it was perfect. They loved Andre Orlovsky as well. Tito Ortiz got booed out <laughs> of the a bit, building. Not big fans. Not big fans. <laughs> <laughs> Who, by the way, I don't know if you you, you know, he's a city council member of Huntington Beach now, yeah. and he refuses. He, he didn't want to wear his mask for a meeting, so he had to live stream from his car. So I'm not going to get into politics here. It's just a, a point of fact. That's what Tito Ortiz did. Um, interesting. But he was getting booed, and then they showed him a few times, and they um, – you know, he, he was eating it up, you know, like he, he was like playing the heel. He put his hand to his ear, you know, like, like Hulk Hogan. But God bless the great Mauro Ronello for his his opening. I mean, Gus did his thing, like I'm legit serious sports announcer. And then Mauro's like, this is Strike Force MMA 2.0. You know, it was like so good. <laughs> Thank you, Mauro Ronello. But this, this is just a huge moment. And I, I was so happy to see it. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, and uh, you know, loved I love that Mara was there for the first, you know, for this one. I, I'm very glad that he was there because I, I think he deserved it, and we as fans deserved it, you know. So it was, 
It was cool. So, uh, but let's jump into the fights themselves. Uh, we already mentioned Brett Rogers. Uh, Brett Rogers defeated Ron, Ron Humphrey, who liked to go by a bongo uh, via TKO coming away of knees at 138 of the second round. Both these fighters were undefeated coming in with Rogers at 8-0 and Humphrey at 6-0. Rogers was coming off three straight KO wins in Elite XC, and he had been scheduled to fight former Strike Force heavyweight title challenger Paul Buentello at an Elite XC event, but that event had gone by the wayside when the promotion folded. Uh, very interesting, and there was an MMA, MMA Weekly article that laid out Rogers' situation coming in, and it sounded pretty tough. He'd been a star on the rise in Elite XC, but then when things began to fizzle, the income had stopped. Rogers actually had to beg to get his tire installation job back in order to make it, and from what he'd said, they you know basically were doing it as a favor to him and said it wouldn't last long, and they had to turn off some utilities, and I mean, he was you know, hungry, maybe even literally to get back into the cage and, and make some money. So, you know, kind of, kind of rough to hear that situation, but that was what was going on. Uh, but for the fight itself, quick note, Rogers actually had competed in the first ever MMA contest on network TV against John Murphy in elite XC. So he'll go down in history for that. Uh, they had her referee Herb Dean mic'd up, which I thought that was pretty cool. You could actually hear him, you know, giving out his instructions and then uh, during the fight, you know, conversing with the fighters if need be. So that was, I thought that was pretty cool. Entertaining first round. Both fighters had their moments with Humphrey controlling a good amount of the round while Rogers was able to land some good shots. And then later in the round, Rogers got a point taken away for grabbing Humphrey's hair three times. And I, which I, I didn't, it didn't look like he was doing it on purpose. And Humphrey had these dreads. So it was really easy to get your fingers caught in there. So I, I thought that was kind of, I didn't really like that. And then for some reason, Humphrey said he needed a minute to recover while the point was being taken away, which was complete garbage. Cause that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't like he got hit while his head, you know, dreads were being held or something. And that's why, you know, so I thought that was dumb, but uh, you know, the dirty boxing for Rogers was really scoring a lot for him. And he landed some really good knees in the clinch too. And in the second, it was just one knee too many and Rogers landed and Humphrey folded and, and that was it. But very entertaining fight. Rogers was definitely the bigger guy and was able to push Humphrey around. And, uh, you know, again, just Rogers, we have statistics on these Rogers outstruck Humphrey 43 to 11. So it wasn't all Rogers, but, but Rogers definitely made a statement in this fight. This was a good fight and it was the perfect fight to open the show on. You've got some heavyweight bruisers and I mean, I used to love Brett Rogers when I was watching this fight with Brett Rogers, I was thinking, wow, this guy's so entertaining to watch. Cause he's just such a hard hitter and he's a big guy and he's hungry. You know, he's, he, he, he wants to fight. He's all in. Um, I, I thought this was a, a really good fight. And I think that, um, you know, Humphrey, he tried, uh, he's just too small. Uh, you know, he, he gave it his all. He was game. He took a hell of a lot of shots. Uh, but you know, Rogers kept using, uh, his, his, his Muay Thai and, and just he, those knees were just vicious and, and Humphrey being a smaller guy. I mean, there was really no game plan for him other than he was just going to have to land a lucky punch and take out this bigger guy, but that wasn't going to happen. You could see uh, Brett the Grim Rogers was green. Uh, he he didn't have much in the way of defense. Uh, uh, he you know he had a lot to learn, but he was. Um, I like the fact that he was really appreciating the moment and he was trying and he was using the best of the gifts that he had. Um, he he was exciting on this night. He was a star. I know we'll talk about him later. He didn't have the best ending to his career or situation. But on this night, I mean, Brett Rogers, was, he did a great job. And he was perfect to open this show with. 
Yeah, it was definitely the perfect fight to open this card with. With the, you know, again, nothing like super quick, but but an entertaining bout and a really strong finish. Uh, yes, we will talk about Brett in the future. Unfortunately, you know, a very sad end to his career, and uh, I don't know what he's up to today. But I, you know, I know as a few years ago, he'd been in and out of jail and just really, really difficult situation. And we'll we'll get to that later on. But for as you said, for tonight. Uh, he was a star. He would be back very, very quickly. He would take on Andre Arlovsky, actually, at Lawler versus Shields in June. Uh, Humphrey would fight three more times in his career, all on Strikeforce Challengers cards, losing to Mike Kyle and Ovin St. Pro before hanging up the gloves in 2011 with a record of 7-3. and three. All right, next bout, Chris Cyborg defeats Hitomi Okano via TKO, come by way of punches at 35 seconds of the third round. This was technically a 145-pound bout. Uh, but we do have to mention that Cyborg badly missed weight. She originally weighed in at 152 pounds for this bout, and she was given a few hours to cut down to 151 to get in within the allowed six-pound difference, or else the fight actually would have been canceled. And on her second attempt, she weighed in at 150.5 pounds and was cleared to fight. She was fined 20% of her fight purse by the California State Athletic Commission for not making weight with half of that going to her opponent. But Cyborg, she was actually still early in her career at this point. She was only 6-1. and one. Uh, She had finished Shanna Baszler by TKO at an Elite XC event the previous year and was definitely being positioned to battle fellow woman star Gina Carano, as we've discussed, who was shown a gazillion times, and that may not be an exaggeration, a gazillion times on camera before, during, and after this bout. So when Josh... Uh, when he said earlier, listeners, when he said it earlier that, you know, the Gina Carano cam, it seemed like they had like some dude parked on his knee, you know, in, in front of her, five feet away from her the entire night because they just showed her so much. And she would smile that, you know, that beautiful smile. And, you know, she uh, flash, I love you and, you know, different. But like, <laughs> Good God. It, at some point, like you run out of like hand motions and, you know, looking at the camera. I mean, it was almost comical. You know, I, I maybe the maybe the the director that night had like a, you know, had a thing for her. I don't know, but it was ridiculous how much they showed her on camera. You know, it was it was it was just yeah, it was a lot. So it's a uh, great way to it's a great way to turn her heel. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, seriously, you just get so sick of her. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, but uh, but Akano, she was fourteen to five, very experienced star in Japan. So this looked like a, a good test for a Cyborg on paper, but. That just was not the case at all. Uh, I mean, this match was, it was really a mismatch. Cyborg just ragdolled Akano. She was so much bigger. I mean, just so much bigger. If she had to cut to make 151, imagine what she actually was when she got in the cage. And I mean, she landed some shots early before suplexing uh, Akano with, to the mat. And it was a very nice kind of like over the shoulder side German suplex. It was really nice. I couldn't believe Akano lasted to do the first round. I mean, she just she had no answer on the feet. Josh Barnett was in her corner, and I, I was mildly surprised he didn't throw in the towel. Uh, good takedown D from Cyborg in the second round. She was just doing whatever she wanted in the fight, and I then couldn't believe that Akano made it to the third, but she didn't last long in the final frame. She fell to her back almost right away to try to draw Cyborg to the ground, and Cyborg, of course, smartly did not follow. Instead, she stayed standing and just kept blasting uh, her opponent and mercifully Josh Rosenthal finally stepped in and stopped it. And, uh, you know, Gina was all smiles cage side. Like I said, they, they kept showing her, but she had to be worried. Uh, <laughs> she had just seen cyborg outstrike Kakano 41 to five. And, and I will mention Gus Johnson in the post fight interview did ask cyborg about her weight cut issues. And she responded through a translator that she'd quote, had some girl problems, 
Uh, and you know, there was no further <laughs> questions <laughs> on that. Uh, but, and she said she was sorry and it wouldn't happen again. And Gus Johnson, <laughs> he then accepted cyborg's apology on behalf of all of us, which just kind of made me crack up. He's like, <laughs> we accept your apologies. I'm like, well, you can't, you don't speak for me. I'm still mad. Like, <laughs> but, but anyways, but yeah, definitely, you know, I, it seemed like a tune-up fight and, and cyborg looked great. You know, I, I was never the hater of, of Cyborg. Like, you know, a lot of people were in MMA. Like, I, I mean, there's a lot of things you could pick on about her. But, I mean, I thought she looked great here. I mean, Who obviously called her Vanderlei Silva in a dress? Was that Chael? I, I think, I feel like that was, <laughs> I feel like someone called her Vanderlei Silva in a dress at one point. So, well, yeah, I mean. I'm not saying I agree with that, but I'm just saying, I, I feel like part of the hate towards her is, is due to her appearance. And, um, you know, there's obviously she did test positive for, you know, steroids at least once. And, you know, so there's a lot of questions about that. But uh, but so, yeah. there, you know, that that's why I'd say she looks slightly better than Vanderlei Silva in her dress. So <laughs> yes, I disagree. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but I mean, she's. She she's sort of a fighter who was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. She was never a one thirty five pound fighter, and so she couldn't have that money deal. And I'm sure Ronda never really wanted to fight her. She was too big, but there aren't a lot of women, you know, in that 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 weight category. And then the big fight she was able to get to, she still had to cut weight to to fight, and and she lost. But you know, I thought she's great, good fighter, good boxer, super aggressive. Uh, you know, if she were a male fighter, I think she would have been hugely popular. People would have loved her, just her intensity. Uh, I mean, Jail got popped for God knows what, how many times, you know, so I don't know what, what um, you know, I mean, this, the, the testosterone thing, whatever it was, I mean, I think fans can forgive that, and I thought she was a good fighter. She gave, uh, you know, as far, as far as this fight goes, Akano gave it her all. I thought she tried. I mean, she was game. She went for some takedowns. She tried an arm bar. Uh, it was not effective because Cyborg was just too big and too strong, and you just can't do anything when somebody's that much taller than you. But um, I thought it was a good fight. Cyborg was impressive. I think if you're Gina Carano, you're thinking that, well, maybe I can just sit here and smile for the rest of my career here at Strikeforce because, I mean, there was no way that anybody was going to beat Cyborg, much less Gina Carano at this time. Yeah. Uh, and I did quickly look it up. It was actually Dana White that said that about Cyborg, that she looked like Vanderlei in a dress and heels. And uh, this was back in 2014. And uh, Ronda Rousey had some really negative things to say about her as well. Said she was an it and didn't look like a, like wasn't even a woman anymore because of, you know, injecting herself, all this stuff. So it's really nasty things that they said about her at that time so to be to um, be fair ronda hates everybody so. yes that it does seem like she does <laughs> anybody that might be any sort of rivals she seems to hate no matter what so uh, i don't know how you hate somebody like holly holm who seems like the nicest person in the world but you know maybe i get that i'm sure that's part of what made ronda such a great fighter for as long as she was so uh, but Akana would be back in Strikeforce a couple times competing on Challengers events. Uh, Cyborg, of course, would be back later in the summer for that milestone fight with Gina Carano. I was there in person. Cannot wait to discuss that one. That is going to be a lot of fun. I think I have my press pass uh, in my in my, my my office closet, so I'm going to have to dig that up. But uh, looking forward to that. Uh, I'm also looking forward to talking about the next fight, 185-pound fight between Scott Hands of Steel Smith and Benji Razor Raddick. Uh, Smith won by K.O. coming by way of punch at 324 of the third round. 
both these guys were known for their stand-up skills and willingness to trade. So this this had highlight real finish written all over it, or had a boring wrestling fat, <laughs> boring wrestling match all over it. If they, you know, that's how it goes sometimes when you put in knockout guys, they end up being so, you know, gun shy that they end up, you know, <laughs> just wrestling each other. But uh, Hands of Steel was 15 and five coming into this highly anticipated matchup. Uh, he was coming off that high right, highlight reel knockout of Dangerous Terry Martin at Destruction and was primed to really put himself in the mix for a strike force middleweight title shot. Raddick, very experienced at 21 and 4, had been a big part of the IFL, which had also folded in 2008, and he'd won six of his last seven fights, which included his lone fight in Elite XC, a TKO win over Ninja Hua at Heat, which was the promotion's last major event. That was the uh, the ill-fated uh, Kimbo-Seth Petrozelli fight that we discussed earlier. But getting to the fight itself, Benji had Boss Rutten in his corner, and his style, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but his style was labeled as Face Smashing Foo, uh, a takeoff on Kung Fu, apparently. <laughs> but I thought that, that kind of made me laugh. Uh, but as often happens when 2KO artists fight, Benji and, and Smith were really more cautious early on than the commentators expected. I mean, they were building it up as if somebody's head might actually come off in the first five seconds of the fight. Uh, but but that did not happen. But as things got began to kind of loosen up, both landed with Raddick drawing first blood on Smith. And then later in the first, Smith dropped Raddick with a shot. And while he was coming in to follow up, Hans of Steel got dropped with a left by Razor. And it was very similar to the Pete Cell fight, you know, with the roles reversed where, you know, Smith had, had got, been hurt. And then as Cell came rushing in, he got he got blitzed and that was basically what happened here. Not on the same level, but very exciting stuff. And I just, I was struck at just how strong of a chin, how crazy strong of a chin Scott Smith had. I mean, he took some really solid shots from Benji in the first and just kept moving forward. And I, it was, it was like a freaking Terminator or something, but uh, finally with under 45 seconds left, Razor took Smith to the map, probably securing the first round for himself. Gus Johnson inexplicably said he thought it was a bad idea for Benji to take Scott down as it gave Smith a chance to rest, and he was, quote, out on his feet, which was clearly not the case, but but okay. Um, but Smith did look very dazed in between rounds, but he was able to communicate. The doctor checked him out, asked him if he was fine. And he, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Uh, and then in the second frame, Raddick starched Smith with a left hook to the temple and followed up with another shot that rocked him even further. I couldn't believe Smith was still standing. He tried to grab a takedown, and Raddick grabbed a very, very tight guillotine, and somehow Hands of Steel weathered all of this, but he was definitely hurt, and he was bleeding badly, and Raddick definitely got round two, and so you'd say Smith was was down two to one or two to zero going into the final round, and he needed a finish, and he kept pushing forward in the third, and he landed a couple shots early. Raddick was able to deal with that, and he landed almost kind of like an Olympic slam a la Kurt Angle, very, very flashy. However, Smith just continued to push forward, and it just it was amazing. And midway through the third, Morrow said he felt like Smith needed a KO to win, and right after that, Hands of Steel delivered, landing a right hand to the jaw that folded up Razor, and Herb Dean stepped in. But what an amazing fight. I mean, Benji dominated most of the fight. He was up 67 to 27 in strikes. He landed two takedowns to zero. Uh, so definitely a come-from-behind victory for Scott Hands of Steel Smith. Scott Smith is my hero. I mean, this guy, seriously, seriously, this, like, is there's not a cooler guy in MMA. I mean, this guy was unreal. I mean, this was like almost like a Kimbo Slice backyard brawl. At least you know once it got going, because these guys well, were just, there was more technique involved than that. But I, I, yeah. I, I get what you're saying though. Just these yeah. guys were killing each other. 
Yeah, a lot more technique, but I mean, there was a, just it was a slugfest, right? It was a barn burner, like you said. Um, and, and Scott Smith, I mean, that was guy, a slobber knocker. <laughs> you need more country, country yeah. accent there. Um, <laughs> um, I but do, I, I can't do Jr. I can't do Jr. <laughs> well, this this um, I mean, this was just like Scott Smith was. He's just this underdog story, and you can't help but root for him. He's like visual proof that anything is possible. He was never the most skilled or the most finessed fighter. Um, I don't think he goes home and, you know, drinks champagne after he wins a fight. I mean, I think he's a guy, he's a man's man. He opens up a beer and just talks about, hey, I left it all in the cage and I beat up the guy and won. I mean, this is the kind of guy that MMA sort of needs more of. Just somebody who's just kind of like accessible and potentially could be a big smart star. I mean, he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was battered, he was out on his feet. When he got hit, you could see like the life just leaving his body, but yet he's somehow still standing up there. Uh, he, he was just so game to just trade punches. He was probably out on his feet. I doubt he remembers some of this fight. I'm sure a lot of it, he was going on uh, on, on, on instinct for sure. Um you know, I, I will say not to defend Gus Johnson, uh, you know, who, who really should not have been covering MMA. Basketball was more his thing. Um, I did feel that that Raddick wasted some opportunities. I think that he could have maybe finished Scott Smith had he jumped on him a little bit earlier when he had Scott out. He did go for a submission. He did try to take it to the ground, which is absolutely fine because if you're fighting Scott Smith, you do not want to be standing up with him because you're playing into the best possible way that he is going to defeat you. So any other scenario is is better than the stand-up. Um, but I realized that, that Benji Raddick was probably tired. He was hurt. And it's easy when you're watching it to think, why doesn't he do this? Well, because he's out on his feet too. So, I mean, this was just a really competitive fight between two sluggers, two, two people with a lot of heart. I thought it was the, the fight of the night. I think that this is a fight you show somebody who says MMA really is those guys who like roll around on the ground and like, you know, they're in their underwear and you, just, you see a submission. Like this is the fight you show them and you say, this is what MMA can be. I mean, these guys were bad asses and tough and they were models for the sport now i'm not saying they were like you know top of the world fighters but that's okay you know they're still among the best fighters in the world and they put on a great show scott smith kind of reminds me of stone cold steve austin i don't know if you see that but <laughs> he's just like a working man you know he's too nice to i mean he's he's a grab your lunch pail like you know guy you see which he's worked construction so you know he's he's got that f for sure so i can see that he's too nice to be stone cold but kind of the every man that they really pushed stone cold as totally yeah totally so and the crazy thing about scott smith is he's got three of these things three of these unreal knockouts yeah come from behind and we're yeah. going to talk about my favorite fight of all time eventually 
with him and Kung Lee. Yeah, I'm looking. Well, which one? The first one or the second one? Uh, we, we don't talk about the second one. We only okay. talk about right. the first one. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna be sick when we record that other show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Well, this was this was definitely fight of the night up to that point for sure. And I, I for my money, it was fight of the night regardless of, of how you feel about the final two fights. But uh, Radic would end up sitting out for over a year and a half before returning to Strikeforce. He was in, heavily involved with LA Boxing, uh, which was a, a big gym deal or a big deal gym down in the, obviously LA and they have uh, franchises all over the country. So he was busy with that sort of thing, but uh, he would be back in strike force. And despite such a tough fight, Scott Smith would actually have a very quick turnaround and he would be back for Lawler versus shields against Nick Diaz. So that obviously a huge, excuse me, a huge fight for him coming out of this one. All right. We are to the co-main event, 155 pounds. Gilbert Melendez defeated Rodrigo Dom via KO coming by way of punch at 202 of the second round to win the Strikeforce interim lightweight title. As a reminder, Dom took the fight on less than two weeks notice due to Josh Thompson breaking his leg in training. Uh, but he was a very, very strong wrestler with an MMA record of eight and two. Uh, his biggest win to date was a KO win over George Masvidal the previous June in Japan. So this was not somebody to take lightly. Uh, however, Strikeforce was was not looking to lose a money matchup in Melendez versus Thompson too. So this wasn't going to be a, uh, you know, they weren't looking to make this the stiffest test for El Nino, whose record stood at 14 and two. This was his first fight back after losing the belt to Thompson, and he was looking to get a win to keep that dream match alive. Uh, it's worth noting Dom had the had Cyborg Chris Cyborg's husband, the other Cyborg, the original Cyborg, uh, and Vanderlei Silva in his corner. So that's worth mentioning. Pretty much a vintage Gilbert Melendez fight. In the first, he caught a kick and knocked Dom down. From there, pretty much pounded on the Brazilian from top position for the rest of the round. A couple minutes into the second, El Nino catches Dom with a right hand and drops him and. Dom was just out. I mean, Melendez got a couple of follow-up shots, but Dom was done, uh, and he was fighting to get up off the mat as the ref, you know, tried to basically hold him back and hold him down, and uh, he was really hurt. The docs were trying to keep him down, definitely in bad shape. Uh, he never really got off. He landed only three st- strikes to Gill's 20 and got no takedowns to Gill's two. So this was, this was all Gilbert Melendez. Do I have to call him Rodrigo Dom? I... You know, Can I, I heard, call him Rodrigo Dam, please? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> so I, I heard both Dom and Dam on the. Uh, I'm pretty sure I heard both those on the, you know, on the the, the commentary. So I, yeah. you know, I mean, and I doubt he's listening to this. So you call him whatever you want. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I heard them say Rodrigo Dam, but Dom is obviously a much better way to pronounce it. But I'm just uh, trying not to get confused here. Uh, I can't believe um, that. He knocked out Jorge Mastaball. That's that's a fight I need to go look up because yeah, that's, I'd like to. I'd that's like crazy. To find that. Yeah. So he's the original BMF, huh? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I I mean, Rodrigo Dom in this fight, I mean, he looked so small. He looked. I mean, I realized he was a replacement, but he looked small. He did not look tough at all. I mean, he just looked out of place, not in fighting shape. And you know, these are lightweights. They're small, I know, but Gilbert looks so much bigger than him. Uh, but Gilbert, like you said, pretty much a quintessential Gilbert Melendez fight. Stalked him, beat him down, was super comfortable in the cage. And uh, this was a good star-making performance for him in front of a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it was, I think it worked out well that Melendez was able to, to get a good, a good easy victory. I think, it, obviously, if you go up against Josh Thompson, it wouldn't have been that quick. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and I did find, and I will send you the link, but there is uh, footage of, of Dom versus Masvidal up on YouTube. So 
Uh, if listeners, if you want to look that up, you feel free to. I'm going to send it to Josh when we get done here, and I'm going to check it out myself. Uh, but Gil, he was interviewed after the fight. He mentioned the scrap pack for the first time, him, Jake Shields, and the Diaz brothers. That was the first time I've heard them, them mention, and definitely within the confines of the hexagon. So pretty cool little moment there. Uh, Don would be back for a Challengers event before heading to the UFC where he would compete seven times inside the octagon, or sorry, inside the octagon, finishing up in 2015 with a 12-9 and nine record. El Nino would be back in August for Carano versus Cyborg against Mitsuhiro Ishida, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, was the first fighter to defeat El Nino, so that gave Melendez a chance to avenge the first loss of his career. All right, it is main event time. We are ready to go. Catch weight of 179 pounds. Don't know why it wasn't 180. There's my OCD again, and that bugs me to no end. Why it couldn't have just been 180, but whatever. Uh, but a catch weight of 179 pounds. Nick Diaz defeated Frank Shamrock via TKO, coming by way of punches at 357 of the second round. Where to begin with this one? Uh, Shamrock and Diaz definitely had some similarities, both being ground experts with good stand-up skills, both willing to tr- talk trash in and out of the cage. Uh, this was an opportunity to to revenge or for revenge for Caesar Gracie, who's Nick Diaz's trainer. As you might remember, Shamrock had knocked Caesar out in 21 seconds at the first Strike Force MMA event back in 2006. Could Diaz avenge his trainer's previous loss? Would this be a passing of the torch? A lot of questions. Going into this one, how much more did Frank Shamrock have left? Uh, you know, was he still the legend of old? You know, all that. A lot of questions to answer. Uh, things did get fairly heated in the buildup. Diaz had flashed middle fingers at Shamrock at the fight announcement, uh, which I was there for that as well. Big, uh, big reaction from the the small crowd that was there when he did that. Would that boil over into the cage? Uh, you know, just just so much to to answer. But in a pre-fight MMA weekly interview. Frank talked about Nick not really being – it's like he showed him respect but didn't think of Nick as a martial artist. He thought of him as more of a fighter, and, and Frank was concerned about people looking up to the younger Diaz and thinking, you know, yeah, that's the way to do things. He talked about him using drugs and, you know, obviously marijuana. And so he, he Frank was, you know, wasn't, wasn't like dumping on Diaz but was just saying, you know, I, I'm worried about – the, you know, the people coming up, I, I, Frank has always been very much about the, the martial arts side of MMA. And then you have guys like Tank Abbott that are just there to brawl. And he seemed to see Diaz as more of a, you know, a, even though he had great ground skills, but he just saw him as more of a scrapper and a fighter than he was a guy trying to, you know, show off his martial arts skills. But, uh, was it, was it Nick Diaz a Brazilian black belt at this time. I don't know if Jiu-Jitsu he was by this belt? point, but if I don't know if he had his BJJ black belt at yet. But I mean, he was he was a ground guy with good striking. This was he was this was you know this was not a situation where Diaz was some street brawler that didn't have any skills. I mean, obviously he was great on the ground. He was coming off. I'm going to say it in just a second. Uh, he was 18 and seven. Had won seven of his last fights. With one of those fights being that amazing bout with Takanori Gomi, where Diaz got a go-go plata submission, which you almost never – I don't know of any other fights. I'm sure it's happened, but I don't know of any other fights uh, in MMA history that ended with a go-go plata. Do, do, have you ever seen that fight before in Pride? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to stop re- asking you if you've I, seen fights in Pride. No, no, I can't resist. Isn't this The Undertaker's uh... – didn't the Undertaker try to do the Gogo Plata yeah, yeah, yeah. submission? Is it that hold? Is, is obviously it's, Undertaker. It's yeah. that hold, but done yeah. correctly. Done it's correctly. That hold, but done, <laughs> done correctly. Undertaker's actually never done the fake hold correctly. By the way, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. trying to do it fakely, he can't do it. But um, what, I, I, but the Hell's Gate submission is is what 
when it grows up and does it right, this is what it this is what it looks like. You know, I've watched some some Pride, mostly Fedor's, uh, but I I've not seen this submission. You but, need to watch yeah. this fight. It is yeah. an amazing, amazing. It is one of my all time favorite fights. And unfortunately, Diaz tested positive for pot. Big shocker there. And the fight was actually declared a no contest. So he actually would have won eight of his last nine if not for that going into this one. But Nick was obviously a great, great submission expert. And, uh, you know, so the, I understand what Frank's saying, and, and I get it. And, and when we uh, – just a little spoiler alert, Frank has agreed to come back on the show. He's going to be our first guest that's appeared twice, and I'm going to ask him about this. I'm going to ask him about – we're going to talk about this fight and the buildup and all of that. But uh, Frank, for his part, he was 23-9-2 coming into the fight, and it was coming off that middleweight title loss to Kung Lee in which he'd broken his arm, which we discuss in the archives so make sure you check that out if you haven't already all right let's get into the action itself in the pre-fight interview package both shamrock and diaz agreed that there are a lot alike in fact diaz diaz said that he couldn't dislike shamrock because that meant he didn't like himself which was a you know a very very interesting thing to say and uh, makes a lot of sense uh, Shamrock came out to the cage in a customized Sharks jersey. We had big John McCarthy as the third man in the cage for this one. And quite the stare down, no touch of the gloves to start things off. Uh, after some feeling out, Diaz catches a Shamrock kick and gets a takedown. Wasn't able to do much with it, but Shamrock was able to get back to his feet. Lots of tra trash talk from Diaz right away. Uh, he got another takedown late in the round and advanced to full mount, but there really wasn't a ton. It really wasn't a ton to the first round, but you, you could tell that Diaz was definitely the guy – uh, he was the better fighter at this point. Uh, and you could see that he, how confident that Diaz was from the outset of the second round. And he just, he felt like Shamrock couldn't hurt him and was talking to, to Shamrock a lot. And as the round wore on, Diaz was just scoring more and more and, and Shamrock just had no answer. I mean, you could see he just couldn't get inside of, of Diaz's reach. That was really a big difference maker is that Shamrock and he had said in the pre-fight that he wanted to try to get inside on Diaz and Diaz with them long arms just kept him at bay. And you could see the energy just leaking out of the legend and, and the, the the Stockton native just landed shot after shot. Eventually Shamrock was dropped with a really, really solid right hand to the body and Diaz pours it on and uh, big John's asking for Shamrock to fight back or defend himself. And, and he wasn't able to, and that was it. And immediately after big John stepped in, Diaz helped Shamrock to his feet and gave him respect, put his arm around him, called him a legend uh, but revenge had been secured for Caesar Gracie, and he was extremely excited. You could see him in the cage. But Nick, again, showed a lot of respect for Frank in the post-fight interview. Uh, Frank, for his part, gave Nick, Nick all the credit and respect as well. Uh, he also said that he would be back in the cage, though, as we've already mentioned, that, that would not happen. But a massive, massive win for Nick at, uh, I think he was either 25 or 26 at the this was a sad fight for me. As much as I love the show and I love everything that happened on this card, I just was really depressed <laughs> after watching this. And I remember I felt the same way when I watched it the first time. I don't know why this fight needed to happen. Uh, Shamrock could have stretched out his career by, by fighting some guys that would have been more of a matchup for him. I mean, he could have fought a, a Benji Raddick or a Scott Smith or, you know, maybe those guys a little too small, but, but not really. I mean, he could have fought guys like that. Um, I know this was a grudge match, and I know it was built around Diaz wanting to avenge Caesar Gracie and that loss and all the, the trash that Shamrock talked about, the Gracie family. And so I realized that there was that part of the story, but 
it was just not a good way for Frank to go out. I mean, you know, Diaz was just too tall, too big, and too confident. This was probably the first fight I've ever seen Frank Shamrock in where I felt like he thought he was going to lose the fight because he is always so confident in that cage. You saw none of it. As soon as the fight started, he was not confident at all. He was just buying time. Um, I was really bummed to hear the San Jose crowd turn on Shamrock, too, in his final fight. I mean, I guess Diaz packed a few thousand people and they were able to control sort of the crowd. But, I mean, that was sad. I mean, here's a guy who, who not that long before was the pride of San Jose who, who'd been packing the house and who was really just lighting up the crowd by his, his promos, by him walking down the aisle. I mean, he was such the man. And then here they do this double turn in this, in this fight, you know, Nick Diaz was never the most well-liked guy, but he got the Diaz chance, you know, and I think it might've been the first round where he was getting them. So it was really interesting. I, I, I did not really like that as much as I love crowd involvement. I'm like, don't boo this guy. Come on. You know, if you want to cheer for, for Diaz, whatever. But I mean, Frank was, was literally getting booed. You know, he was booed when they, when they announced him. Um, you know, as far as the actual fight, Diaz won it with a lack of, you know, he just had a lack of respect towards Shamrock. Uh, he was winning the mind games. Like, he didn't think there was any way Frank had anything at all in his pocketbook that could beat him. So he was able to keep him away. Uh, Frank didn't really try to take him down. He didn't try many kicks. He didn't come at him from different levels or different angles. He just kind of tried to box with him. And Diaz is just too good, especially with smaller fighters. Um, And he's really good defensively with that reach, pawing at him. You know, the irony, you know, of this is that, you know, Diaz is, you know, he has a gruff demeanor. He's not the most articulate communicator. And at times he does walk walk around like he just kind of, came in off the street, but, you know, he's a really smart fighter, like really smart. He knew exactly the game plan. He's very tactical. He knows how to win fights. He knows how to use mental mind games to, to out, you know, fox his fight, his opponent. So I thought that was really cool. I mean, this is a guy who, who lasted five rounds with, with GSP and, you know, Anderson Silva. And, you know, he just... He, his time was now, and Frank's time had, had passed. Uh, I liked the hug, the embrace afterward. You know, uh, Nick pulled him up and showed him that, uh, hey, I, I um, you know, you're a great fighter, and I want to show you that respect. And, like, it's kind of a good reminder to all those fans who get really involved in this and start attacking these fighters like they know them. It's like, you know, these fighters have a lot of respect for each other most of the time, and they're in there at the end of the day trying to sell fights. So, you know, I don't think you should go all nuts hating on a fighter when the truth of the matter is they have a lot of respect for each other. I did think Big John McCarthy let the fight go a little bit too long, maybe five seconds too long. I, I, there was no way Frank was getting up, but I guess he was giving him that, that legends uh, sort of time there to sort of pull a miracle out of his hat. But anyway, it was a good moment for Diaz, not a good moment for Frank. I did, I just felt sad that this was the end of Frank's career. Now, I, I think you nailed it on there when you said that, you know, basically Diaz's time had come and, and Frank's had passed. And that's really, that's really all there is to it. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Diaz would be back in a quick turnaround. He would take on Scott Smith at the next Strike Force event, Shields versus, or Lawler versus Shields. 
Shield, Shields versus Lawler. I've, yeah, Shields versus Lawler. <laughs> uh, and this would be it for Frank. I mean, what an incredible career for a true legend of mixed martial arts. I mean, the, the first middleweight champion for both the UFC and Strike Force. Incredible. Uh, just incredible, incredible accomplishments. He won a bunch of other titles, Pancrase, WEC, drew massive gates. I mean, really one of the most important mixed martial artists of all time. One of the first guys to train everything, a very cerebral fighter, a master marketer, a master at, at selling fights. I mean, at, at branding himself, just an incredible fighter and not just one of the best, but again, one of the most important MMA fighters of all time. And I'm glad he's coming back on the show to discuss uh, this fight in his career. I, I very much appreciate that. I'm looking forward to that. But that's that's Shamrock versus Diaz. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers afterwards. Total disclosed fighter payroll of $633,445. Notable salaries to mention. Nick Diaz got just under $40,000 with a $10,000 win bonus, while Frank Shamrock got $369,790 for this fight. Well, Nick Diaz, boy, he he got shafted. He got the short end of the stick <laughs> on the money for sure. I mean, I mean, I think Frank should have made more money, uh, but I don't. You know, they have a small gate or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I mean, total fighter payroll of six hundred thirty-three thousand, and Shamrock got more than half of it. So yeah. you know, he 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 can't complain, and he probably you know, uh, again, we've talked about it. There's some some cloudiness about whether or not he was a part owner or had some equity in Strike Force and. You know, who knows what other, you know, ancillary income he might have gotten. But, uh, but yeah, definitely a huge disparity there. Uh, Gilbert Melendez got uh, just under 50000 while Rodrigo Dom got just under 10000 Scott Smith got just under fifty. Benji Raddick got just under seventeen. Brett Rogers got just under forty with a $20,000 win bonus, and I'm sure that came in very, very much came in handy for, you know, the bills and things he was dealing with. Chris Cyborg got 18000 and Luke Rockhold got only $6,000. But at the post-event press conference, it was revealed that Diaz had signed a six-fight, two-year contract. Uh, he was asked about fighting Kung Lee and said, quote, Kung's not a complete fighter. He's never fought anybody. And then kind of seemed to backpedal and said, not that Frank's not a complete fighter. So I don't know what we're going for there. I would have loved to have seen Kung Lee in that. Oh, my Nick God. Diaz. I would have loved to have seen that fight because I think Diaz would have been crazy smart, smart crazy enough to stand with Kung and, you know, maybe even outstrike him. I mean, it sounds crazy, but – just yeah that would have been an amazing fight i would have loved nick, to have seen that nick diaz was the better fighter all around but oh, uh, kong kong could knock anyone out with those kicks so yeah, it's just might, a matter of could he cut, do it? cut nick's head off with a kick yeah so, <laughs> uh but in addition coker talked about setting Corona cyborg up for the august showtime event with the inaugural women's belt on the line and that would happen both smith and raddick had to get stitches raddick also had a broken hand plus he said his teeth had gone through his cheek on that knockout blow so uh, you know, that's pretty nasty. Uh, it was revealed that former UFC heavyweight champion Kevin Randleman had signed with Strike Force, and Tito Ortiz was contemplating a deal with the promotion as well. Uh, we should address Tito being there. I mentioned earlier Frank and Tito had kind of called each other out earlier in the year, and Tito was up for it but was dealing with contractual issues, so we weren't you know sure if that was going to be able to happen. But Strike Force showed Tito on camera during the event, and like like we said, and Josh had pointed out how he had been booed. Um, so it looked like they were you know planning to do something with him, and Apparently, at some point during the night, Babalu confronted Tito in the crowd. No punches were thrown. But, I mean, you know, Huntington Beach Bad Boy was making his presence known and was there for a purpose, uh, unfortunately, or again, fortunately, depending on your perspective, it never led to anything as he would not sign with Strike Force. But as Kimbo would work with Coker later in Bellator, obviously Tito went on to work with, with Coker in Bellator as well. But overall, 
I thought Shamrock versus Diaz was a fantastic event, a true milestone event for Strike Force. Several very memorable bouts, some new stars born. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and on top of all of that, the stage was really set for Lawler versus Shields uh, being a mem- memorable event in its own right. So, I, 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 man, just a great show. Josh, I don't think there's going to be any surprises here. I think you thought it was a great show, too. <laughs> well, you know, now that I think about it, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was just a great show, great production, great fights. Mauro Ronaldo was amazing. We saw a lot of stars being born. Uh, we saw Frank Shamrock figuratively passing the torch here. Um, you could not walk away from this show without thinking MMA and Strike Force was on the rise. You, you couldn't walk away without thinking this company is a big deal. It was like a high-level boxing show. And, man, I mean, I just I just hate thinking about the end of Strike Force. I know we're a ways from there, but it just makes me, you know, so upset about, you know, the, the group that owns Strike Force eventually selling it to the UFC. But, um, you know, this at this moment in time, this promotion was everything good about MMA. It's that sweet spot, those great production values. We're seeing the emergence of these stars. These were great fights. And uh, it's the best announcer in the world, the best combat sports announcer in the world. In Moro Ronaldo, and I keep hitting that home, but I'm not like I don't know him. Um, I, I I think I, I think I've talked to him once, but like you just man, he's so good. You know, we're just so lucky that so much of his his library is 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 able you know on record and people can people can hear it. And he really made these shows seem so important. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to hearing him as the as the lead announcer for Strike Force as we go along in these events. So. Good stuff. Uh, good stuff. Uh, in our next episodes coming up, as I mentioned, Frank Shamrock has agreed to come back on the show. So I'm really excited about that. We'll be discussing his final fight with Nick as well as some other topics. Uh, I also want to talk to him about the proposed uh, fight with Ken Shamrock that never ended up happening because that was kind of like the last fight they were talking about. So I'm going to get into details about uh, Blood Brothers and why that didn't happen. But uh, after that, we'll be covering Shields versus Lawler, which was headlined by, you guessed it, Jake Shields and Robbie Lawler. Kevin Randleman and a, a guy you may have heard of, Tyron Woodley. Uh, they, they make their Strike Force debuts on the undercard of that, while Fejal Cavalcante and Andre Arlovsky would also make their Hexagon debuts, uh, though theirs would be on the main card. In addition, Mike Kyle, Phil Baroni, Joe Riggs, Nick Diaz, Scott Smith, and Brett Rogers would all be back inside the hexagon. So there's going to be a ton to cover on that one. I know there's some memorable fights for sure. Brett Rogers uh, taking on Andre Arlovsky in a very memorable bout, you know, uh, Shields and Lawler. I mean, there's some, some really great fights on that card. So, and I'm looking forward to covering that one and, and, and all the stuff we've got in the pipeline. We've got some good stuff coming. So again, make sure that you stay tuned, make sure you're following us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the hexagon pod. Uh, you can reach me at Phil at inside the hexagon.com. We'd love to hear from you, get your feedback. Uh, please consider rating and reviewing the show. If you haven't already on Apple podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your, wherever you get this show, make sure you review us. That would be fantastic. We'd appreciate it. Helps others to find the show. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We'll see you soon.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.